you will, take your Bibles, open to the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 18. We're going to begin our reading uh, there in just a moment in verse 15 and read through the, uh, the end of that chapter, verse 22. Again, the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of your Old Testament, uh, again, chapter 18, and we'll begin in just a moment in verse 15. I always enjoy uh, both the preparation uh, for preaching. I enjoy the work over the course of the week, and then I enjoy stepping into the pulpit and presenting uh, that which uh, has been prepared over the course of that week, presenting it uh, to, to you. And I am certainly in the course of this particular sermon series uh, because uh, it's, it's quite a stretch for me uh, to preach uh, these types of sermons and uh, uh, to take this much material and entirety of a biblical book and to uh, try to compress them into my 30-minute 30 <clears throat> 30 sermons. And so uh, that, that is a challenge uh, indeed. And it, it is a frustration uh, in, in that I discover so much in the course of the week that I think is absolutely fascinating and riveting and, and applicable uh, to us in our Christian walk. So I hope uh, that, uh, that you're enjoying these sermons, that they're edifying, they're encouraging, they're instructive uh, to you and for you uh, in your Christian walk. Uh, in the course of study uh, this week, I, I ran across uh, uh, a conversation uh, involving uh, a man by the name of Dr. James Hamilton. Uh, some of you men participated uh, in a book reading. It's been five or six years ago now. Uh, God's Salvation Through Judgment. Uh, Dr. Hamilton is a, a professor at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And of the book of Deuteronomy, he said something to this effect, that it is the heart of the Pentateuch. And then he went on and said, well, actually, it is the, the heart of of the Old Testament. Uh, that is, that it functions like our physical heart, that uh, our physical heart receives blood and sends it out to the, uh, the other parts of our body. And the book of Deuteronomy uh, takes that which has been said in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and in some way compresses it, in some way expands it, in some way interprets it, and then it is pumped through the entirety of, of the Old Testament. It, it actually uh, informs and fuels the proclamation of the prophets. What do they call the nation back to? They call them to repentance under the terms of this covenant renewed on the plains of Moab here uh, as Moses is about to uh, uh, pass from the scene. It informs the, the, the writers of the wisdom literature how do you live wisely? You live according to God's Word, according to God's law. It, it defines the evaluation of the nation of Israel and its kings throughout the historical books. How often uh, have, have we read in these books, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, describing a particular king, which meant he departed from the book of the law. He was living in violation of God's word and God's law. And it's actually uh, among the most quoted or alluded to of all of the books of the Bible, 
uh, within the New Testament. And, and so the New Testament writers uh, found great use for the book of Deuteronomy. So as we close out the study of, uh, of the Pentateuch, of the five books of Moses, I hope that you will see uh, that these four previous books that we've looked at, they inform uh, Deuteronomy. There's really not anything particularly new in Deuteronomy. Uh, it is, a, again, a recapturing, recapsulation, reformulation of that which has been said uh, previously. And there is a sense where Deuteronomy informs our understanding of the entirety of the Bible. And certainly it can be said of the first five books of the Pentateuch that if you do not have an accurate knowledge, an understanding of these first five books of the Bible, it's impossible to understand the rest of the Bible. And simply put this way, without a proper understanding of God's law, there is no understanding of the gospel. In fact, I will say there is no conversion without an understanding of your not felt guilt. Now again, once God the Holy Spirit presses upon your heart and mind the realities of the law, you'll feel some guilt, okay? I'm not saying, but I'm not, you know, I'm not saying uh, that you don't feel guilt, but more importantly, the guilt's real. You're guilty before a holy God, holy God and it is defined by that law, which does what? Drives us to the gospel. Drives us to the great reality of what God has accomplished in His Son, Jesus Christ, and is given to us, received uh, by grace through faith. And so none of that makes sense. Again, I would even argue that apart from Genesis 1 through 3, nothing about life makes sense. Nothing about our life in this world can, can, can you bring any order out of the chaotic nature of our world today if you don't have a, a grasp of what has gone on as defined and described in Genesis uh, 1 through 3. And so as we uh, continue uh, our journey on Route 66, we're going to pause with Moses uh, on the plains of Moab, on the borders of of that land that was promised, the land flowing with milk and honey. And we'll take a view of here in a few moments as he defines and prophesies that there will be a prophet like unto Moses that will appear on the scene of human history in the course of Israel's history. So read with me about this promised prophet the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking. A prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. 
But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the working of your spirit that illuminates our minds and gives us understanding, Lord, we confess that our understanding is not perfect. There's so many things that we would have questions of, but that you have made clear there is a greater prophet. There is one greater than Abraham. There is one who indeed has blessed the nations of the earth, and his name is Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that as we preach from this final book of the law, that as we have previously, and as we would hope to always see every time that we gather, we would see Jesus as high and lifted up. We would understand his gospel, that that which he has accomplished for us at Calvary. And may we indeed rejoice in the goodness of your good news. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What we have here are the final words of Moses in preparation for his death that he has been told is imminent. It is the result of his disobedience. And he is not going to be allowed to enter uh, this promised land, this land that they have sought for now 40 years years. And so there's going to be a transition uh, to the young man, his assistant uh, Joshua, and he is actually going to lead the invasion and the conquest and the occupation of the promised land. And so Moses has the purpose here, God has the purpose to remind this new generation, the, the invasion an occupation generation, not the Exodus generation. The Exodus generation had died under God's judgment in those 40 years in the desert. So this is a new generation, the children of the Exodus generation. And he has reminded them and reminding them and reminding us of the faithfulness of God. In the opening phrases of Heath's prayer a moment ago. He mentioned the steadfastness or the steadfast love of God, the faithfulness of God. Usually when you see that word in your English Bibles, there's a Hebrew word behind that. And the word is pronounced kesed. It's a very unique word, and it is a word that describes the fact of God's electing, faithful, eternal, effective and efficient love to save and preserve his people. Although his people may at times prove themselves to be faithless, he is the one who is eternally faithful. 
to his promise to love and secure a people. And so, again, Moses reminds the people that indeed they have been faithless, but their God is the faithful one. And he will do what he has promised uh, to do. They, they understood the severity of God's judgment. They saw their parents die in the desert. And I believe they knew why they died. Because they chose to disbelieve God, to rebel against God there after the report of the spies, if you remember us looking at that last week. They knew that even Moses, for one seemingly insignificant act of rebellion, striking the rock rather than speaking to it, Now, I said that word insignificant very intentionally because sometimes we kind of go, well, you know, we all sin, and we do. And so it's not the reality of how we would judge our sins, great or small. It is the fact that no matter how small that we calculate our sin to be, It is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. And so all all sin is serious in the eyes of God. And again, in contemplating that, that should drive you to the greatness of the gospel, of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is here that he charges them in regards to their responsibilities, and their opportunity for blessing and success in the land that God promised them. So in this final address or addresses, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, uh, they're on the plains of Moab, they're at the border of the promised land. He reminds the nation of her past, And he establishes her priorities for the present, and he encourages her to possess through faithful obedience the blessings of her heritage. The nation was on the cusp of receiving that which was first promised to Abraham five to six hundred years earlier. And these blessings, as we've tried to track them, even going all the way back to the genealogies of uh, our Christmas series from the Gospel of Matthew, that that there's a way in which these promises first made to Abraham are are extended back into the creation ordinances. Remember, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But because of their rebellion, they and the earth upon which they lived was cursed. And we see something of a mitigation of that curse and even in some sense a reversal of that curse through Abraham and his descendants. And so they're about to receive the fulfilling of the promises made to Abraham. They're going to receive these blessings for the sake, and get this, of the ultimate blessing of the greatest of Abraham's descendants, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. 
They're given the land and they're given the law by God's grace for their good to preserve them as a people, okay? It's, 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 there, there's a preservative aspect of, of that law in that theocratic kingdom that kept them from killing each other and kept God from killing them so that the nation would be preserved to produce that one who was promised through Abraham, the one through whom and in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, his name being Jesus Christ. And so, indeed, we've talked about this a number of times. They will receive the blessings of place or property, that land. Remember, one of the original blessings was a place, a piece of property known as what? The Garden of Eden. And in fact, the creation of this nation in some sense, in kind of a metaphorical way, is a bit of a return to Edom, Eden, a land in which you're going to flourish. Okay, And so they're promised this place or property, protection in that place by God himself, prosperity in that uh, place, progeny in that place, and the unique presence of their God. He's going to, they're going to be the people among whom he will choose to dwell. So today, in the sermon, I've made four divisions. Three of them or actually in the text, I, I'm going to try to preserve enough time, and I'm already way behind schedule, or y'all are one. Uh, but um, preserve enough time to say some things to kind of sum up the study of the Pentateuch. But here, the book of Deuteronomy can be divided into three sections, two fairly short ones and one really big one, okay? That is, the first four verses of chapter 1 serve as an introduction. And then chapters 1, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1, and going through chapter 31, verse 13, are the instruction of Moses, okay? Now, within that, you can divide that sermon or sermons, okay? There's a little bit of debate. Is this one sermon or is this three sermons, okay? I'm not going to get into that. It's not really our concern today. But in that sermon... There are three appeals that Moses makes. The first appeal is an appeal made on history, the history of the nation, God's history with them, an appeal made to the law, an appeal made to promises and blessings extended by God. So first section, introduction, second section, instruction, and the final section, inauguration, that is the transition, the recognition that Moses is going to pass off the scene. And indeed, he is going to be succeeded by this man, Joshua. And in some sense, he is not the fulfillment, but he is the fulfilling, and you'll see some language in Joshua, that he is going to be one that's very intimate with God, and God speaks to him. In some sense, he is that prophet, like unto Moses. But he is not the prophet, like unto Moses. Only Jesus will fulfill that. So I, I, you know, me, sometimes I get a, a, little, a little tickled about things. There, there's an old adage about sermons that, uh, you know, a sermon is uh, three points, a poem, and a prayer. Well, that's exactly what Deuteronomy is. It's three points, a poem, and a prayer. 
look at it when you get home and see if that's not the case. All right, introduction, verse 1, chapter 1. These are the words. God revealed himself uniquely, had a unique task for this man, Moses. Think about it for just a moment. There's no written word until Moses. Moses writes the Word of God. He doesn't have anything to really compare it to. He doesn't have anything to go, okay, I'm thinking about writing something called the Bible, and let me go see if I can find some things to compare it to. No. God began from scratch with this man, uh, Moses. And certainly, he was indeed well-prepared because he was trained in all the wisdom of Egypt. And so uh, his uh, accomplishment is uh, enormous. And so we, we find essentially that uh, he is going to uh, preach this sermon or sermons there on the plains of Moab. Let me just kind of set it for you. These are just very round, very rough dates. But uh, Abraham appears on the scene somewhere 2000, 1900 B.C. Uh, Joseph uh, goes to Egypt about 1900. His brothers come about 1850 B.C. Moses is born about 1520. Uh, He leaves Egypt about 1480. He comes back for the beginning of the Exodus in 1440. And here we are 40 years after the Exodus at approximately 1405 B.C. Okay, so we see this history from Abraham all the way down uh, to Moses. And so uh, he is about to lead this generation into the place in which they're going to experience God's blessings. And so that's the uh, introduction. And so we see now, beginning in verse 5, the instruction uh, from Moses. And the first thing is the appeal to the history of Israel, the, the appeal of the nation's history with God, so to speak. Now, I'm going to throw a new term out at you. You can Google it later or whatever. But these biblical covenants take the rough form of what is known as a suzerainty treaty. A suzerainty treaty. S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N-T-Y. Suzerainty treaty. It's just a form, a format that ancient treaties between kings and subjects, a form that they tended to take. It's a bit like if you were to go online and say, I want to get a contract to sell a house or a piece of property, or I want to find a contract to to, uh, write a will. There there are templates that you can download, and, and they have certain categories in them, right? You follow what I'm saying? They, they, they have a certain things that they include in there. And so these treaties had a kind of a format. Typically, they involved a preamble. Preamble, Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. That's a pretty good preamble, isn't it? That, that, that's, that's God and his history with that nation. I am your redeemer. I am your savior. And so preamble, historical prologue, then the various stipulations and laws. This is how we're going to live in community. This is how you can live together and please me. And as I say, not kill each other, okay? Not destroy each other, okay? The stipulations, laws, and regulations, this is a contract. This is an agreement about how you're going to live as my subjects. 
Then typically there's something said about here's how you're going to keep copies of the treaty. And then you're going to rehearse and review these treaties. There's going to be a regular opportunity to remind people of this treaty that you're living under. Sometimes there's a call to witnesses. You ever seen in the Bible? I call upon heaven and earth as a witness. Okay? See that? All right. And then typically in these treaties, there are cursings and blessings. That is, if you obey, here are the rewards. If you disobey, here are the problems that are going to come your way. Here's the punishment that's going to come your way. And so that, this, this book kind of follows that type of order, and certainly Exodus 20 follows that type of order. So in verse 5, chapter 1, Moses reminds the people of their first approach to the promised land. Well, he could have gone all day and not talk about that, couldn't he? That was a great failure of the people. It, it is a reminder of the penalty incurred by that generation. And then he goes through the 40 years in the wilderness, and he includes that, the fact that he was so frustrated that he disobeyed God. And indeed, he's going to suffer God's punishment and not be allowed to enter this land that he has so long sought. And then there's this closing or exhortation there in chapter 4. And in fact, if you want to kind of turn forward into chapter 4, you see here in 4, 5, and 6, this exhortation regarding the Word of God to hear, to listen the Word of God. Let me read from what we call the Shema, Genesis, oh, excuse me, Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7. Listen to this. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And it goes on. My point in saying this is that God's people have always been a word-centered people. In fact, it is by the word of God that God's people have been called, created, constituted and congregated through the Word and the Spirit. And so you see that emphasis here. Hear the Word of God. And so there is a centrality to the Word of God indeed for the people of God. The, the center of what we do here each week is the preaching, is the proclamation of the Word of God. There are a lot of things we could do Okay, And a lot of churches are built around those other things. Most big churches have a dynamic, explosive, entertaining, and even excellent music program. I mean, who doesn't like good music? I don't know of anybody that doesn't like great performances by those that are skilled. But that's not the center of what we do. I, I think our music is great. But really, the function of music is more liturgical, it's more confessional, it's more instructional then it's designed to work you up into a particular emotional state. And, now, and I'm one that loves music. I've told you this before. When I hear the acoustic strums of peaceful, easy feeling, I get a peaceful, easy feeling. And I, when I hear the guitar riff that starts already gone, I'm ready to get my football helmet and shoulder pads. Let's strap it on. Let's go. When I hear the opening 
keyboards a free bird? I'm as free as a bird now. Really? I, I mean, music is great, but that's not the point of the gathering of God's people. It is to hear, thus saith the Lord. And so that is what that is our purpose uh, for gathering. So he appeals to their history and their failure to obey all that God has said. And then beginning in chapter 4, verse 44, he makes an appeal to the word of the law. That God has given you this good and great law, and he repeats for them the entirety of the Ten Commandments there in chapter 5, verse 1. And so God gave them this law. It is a good law. It is a useful law. And in that law, it reveals the very character of God. What kind of God is our God? Well, his law shows us very clearly that he is not like the other gods of the ancient world. We can see that, among other things, in his law. It reveals the will of God. How do we act toward God? What does he demand of us in relation to him? What does he demand of us in relation to one another? Particularly this, this particular kingdom, this particular point, in this particular time. But I would say to you that the law informs us as to how we are to live together. The summary still stands. We are to love God, all heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what? That's the first four commandments. And the second six commandments are what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I, I, I think that's great and good, but I think you need the word of the law to understand what it means to love one another. Because we live in a time when you've got a knucklehead that is the governor of the state of California that puts billboards all over the southeast that said, this is the way you love your neighbor. He quotes a Bible verse and says, come to California and abort your image bearer, your child in your womb. You, that is not how you love your neighbor. How much have we heard in these last five years? This is how you love your neighbor. You get a vaccine. You wear a mask. You social distance. You shut down your life. And you provide abortions for your, for your children. I don't see anything in the second table of the Ten Commandments that provides for that. And so we need it defined. What does it mean to love our neighbors? And so it exposes, now, it exposes our guilt. It defines for us that I am really guilty. This is what the law does. It defines the fact that I'm guilty. As Spurgeon said, the law is the silver needle that draws the golden thread of the gospel through the hearts of men. The law breaks us before a holy God. But that's not the end of the story, thanks God. It drives us to the gospel in which every demand and every penalty of that law is met, is satisfied, is accomplished in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wish I had time to unpack it more completely for you, but I don't. But let me just, just an aside very quickly. Y'all know I don't, I don't go to many preacher boy meetings. Um, 
I don't like them. They don't like me. Uh, I'm either mad or they're mad when we finish. And so that's okay. I'm right and they're wrong, and that's just the way it is. So y'all know, I didn't want to be a preacher. I didn't like them. Still don't. Still stands. And so, but I went, and I'm glad I did and enjoyed it. But I went to a meeting of an organization called ALCAP. It's been around a long time. I've been familiar with it since my days at Beeson. And uh, Alabama Citizens Action, uh, I forget what the P stands for, people or something. But anyway, good organization. They used to primarily be involved in lobbying the state to prevent casino gambling and, other, and lotteries. And here's the thing. My understanding is there's going to be a proposal before your state legislature that they want to put 10 casinos in the state of Alabama. Now, that's great. That's what we need. That is good government, people, as Barney Fife once said. That's about the stupidest thing I've ever heard of in my life. Let, let, do you, let me tell you, how many people do you know that they need the encouragement and the opportunity to throw away their money? Just tell me how many people you know like that. But anyway, but they broaden and they're dealing with all of these gender issues, what's being taught in public schools, uh, the abortion issues. And so they're really doing a good job. And as I've told you before, one thing about the law of God, it allows me to stand in the public square and with confidence say, this is true, this is right, this is vice, this is virtue, okay? And I don't know if they, that, that group actually understands it that way, but the law of God defines that which is true and that which is right. And so we need, I think it still has validity and use. That's not the same thing as denying that it is fulfilled in Christ, okay? It's not the same thing as saying we're under the law. Listen, just, I'm going to say something, and I want y'all to smile because it's good news. Everything that God demands for us was accomplished in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you smile when you say that? Just a little? I mean, I'm not asking for much, folks. Come on. So please get that. But the law still has its use. has its use in the life of the believer as it points out our progress and points out our failure. Just, again, going back to the Alcap business, I don't know who this was from, and I tried to find out, but they put this up on the board. Of course pagans want Christians to stay out of politics. They know that if they can silence and neutralize pastors and churches, they all have, or they'll have free reign to steer society right into the pits of hell. Now, again, how do I argue for that? I argue on the basis of God's truth. This is right. This is wrong. As the leader of the ministry said, I thought this was good because I've struggled with this in terms of being salt and light. That goes way back, a long time ago. What does it mean? Is, is legislating things like removing abortion or any of the things that we think should be done, is, is that a good thing? Should we, should we be involved or just preach the gospel? And, and, and the ultimate purpose, preach the gospel, please. But, and, and this guy made the statement. He said, by legislating good laws, 
laws that reflect biblical principles. He says, we're not just trying to create a better place from which you go to hell. Okay? In other words, the purpose is not having some kind of nominal Christian or moral foundation that, that nobody steals stuff and nobody lies and nobody has abortions. and on and on. That, that would be good, but that's not the ultimate. It's not we want to have a nicer place where we treat each other well, but we all wind up in hell. The point is that there be a better place to go to heaven from. Okay? The gospel still is preeminent. There will be millions of moral people in hell. Probably, in many cases, more moral than some of the folks that are in heaven if the truth were known. And so, again, it is the law of God. Moses appeals uh, to uh, that law and uh, instructs the people. In, within that, there are laws concerning their king, chapter 17. It's very interesting if you look at that. And at the core of what it meant to be a king is he was to write a copy of the law and it was to be approved by the Levitical priest. He was to be a man of the Word of God. And if you go back and look, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, that meant what? He had departed from the Word of God. Now, to our text in chapter 18, this great prediction and great prophecy. We talked last week about the uniqueness of Moses, that he was intimate with God. He talked to him face to face. Jesus was eternally intimate with God and face to face, proston theon. And I like this. I think it's, at least I haven't heard anybody else say it. Moses reflected on his face the glory of God. Jesus radiated from within the glory of God. There's a big difference between reflecting something and radiating something. Jesus is one greater in every way, in essence and performance, he is greater than Jesus. Moses obeyed. In fact, Robert Hebrews said he was faithful in all of God's house. But Jesus was greater. He was perfectly obedient. Moses led an exodus. He, he did a great thing. He revealed God. But Jesus was God incarnate. He was full of grace and truth. Again, he dwelled among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father. Moses led the exodus and that was great. But Jesus is leading and has led a greater exodus. He's led you out of bondage to your own sin by his work on the cross at Calvary. Moses was meek, but Jesus was the perfection of meekness. Y'all know one of my favorite verses. Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'm going to put the law on you and just work you to death. No, I'll give you rest because I've accomplished every work necessary for your salvation. And so, I am gentle and lowly of heart. And what's the promise? Concept of the promised land? Rest in the land. Jesus, you come unto him, and I will give you rest for your soul. It's far better to have rest for your soul in Jesus than to live in the promised land under the old covenant. And so Moses gave bread. Jesus was the true bread. Moses gave bread that you eat it, you're hungry again. Jesus gives bread. If you eat of it, you'll never hunger again. 
He, Moses gave water, but Jesus is the living water, and he who drinks of him shall never thirst. So Jesus is this greater promised prophet. Look at uh, chapter 21, verse 22, another prophecy concerning Jesus. We kind of touched on it last week with the serpent in the wilderness. Chapter 21, verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. So particular law uh, given related to the enactment of the death penalty. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, notice, notice, not the blessing of Moses, but the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so this, prom, this, this prophecy and this law here of cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus suffered the curse of our rebellion against him, our violation of the law. Jesus suffered that curse for us on the cross. He suffered the wrath of God for you. And all God's people said, yes, hallelujah. And so, the appeal to law, central section of the sermon, final section, the appeal to the word of promise and blessing. I wish I had time to go further. I'm, I'm really not. I'll just say this. One of the fundamental, big fancy word today, hermeneutical problems in the church today is confusing and conflating and mixing together Old and New Covenant in a way that brings forward the promise of material blessing, which are actually in the Old Covenant. I'm going to bless you. And, and the way I'm going to bless you is all the things that you really like. You know, everything that makes a great nation and a great people, that is yours if you'll obey me. But if you don't, I'm going to kill you. I mean, you know, summary. The New Covenant really doesn't promise material prosperity. Woe to those who try to make that claim, okay? But it says that the promises that are ours in Christ are far better than any bumper crop of wheat. Of any, anything that could have happened under the old covenant, that, that these promises of God are all amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the greater blessing there uh, found in chapter 28. And so, final quick word. Uh, we see in beginning in chapter 31, this transition, the inauguration of Moses. Uh, interesting thing as it concludes, we have the record of Moses' death. Moses wrote the book. Thank y'all for listening. Thank you for tuning in today. I appreciate that. I really do. Now, I'm okay 
if Joshua or somewhere else wrote the record of his death. But it's interesting, I heard a guy that uh, commented that one of the scholars that teaches at MacArthur's Seminary, the Master's Seminary out in California, actually in, in a workshop made the case there's no reason Moses couldn't have wrote the account of his own death. And it's plausible. Now, again, it's kind of awkward, but I'm not sure that's where I'm at, but I thought that was interesting, okay? So, conclusion as we leave the Pentateuch. Probably 5% of the sermons I've preached over 20 years have been from the Old Testament. I will tell you, the first sermon I preached in this building was from Joshua 1. You remember, don't you, Joey? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Yeah. So, why? Well, I think there's a great urgency to the gospel. I think probably in following the pattern of MacArthur, you know, more emphasis on the New Testament uh, appropriately. Uh, maybe something in terms of my comfort level in dealing with text and, uh, you know, uh, very uncomfortable with Old Testament pre preaching that says, take your five smooth stones and go slay your giants, okay? Uh, that's, that's, that's not biblical preaching, okay? So, but we're here, and I think it's important. And here's the thing that, that came to me, just as, as a word of closure here. I mentioned the ALCAP meeting, and, and again, it was productive and it was good. I'm glad that I went. Thankful to live in Alabama, folks. I'd hate to live in California, New York, Oregon, Washington. I'm just telling you, okay? But all of these great moral questions that were mentioned by legislatures, uh, by the uh, Attorney General, Steve Marshall was there. He spoke, did a good job. Uh, and, but all of the issues that we're wrestling with, human identity and value, sanctity of life, these gender issues, the death penalty, we just had a controversy in this state over that, uh, all of the issues related to, to uh, immorality, uh, marriage, parental rights, socialism, justice, racism, work, gambling, vice and virtue. There's a sense where all you got to do is read the first three chapters of the Bible. All the questions are answered. Certainly in these five books, we have enough information to stand for what is right and true. We have enough information to not only stand for what's right and true, but in standing for what's right and true, pointing people to the fact you'll never be right and true enough. This law says one ultimate thing. You need a Savior. And there's not but one. And the good news is that everything, every single thing without exception that God demands in His law was accomplished in this greater prophet, one like unto Moses, whose name is Jesus Christ. Again, the gospel, so much greater. Moses was great, but the gospel, the new covenant represented in that gospel, is better than anything that the old covenant foreshadowed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is indeed for us. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your testimony of your grace to us. We thank you for your law that we could easily convince ourselves, without your word and without your spirit that we're just good people. We're just trying to do the best we can. And certainly 
the great God in heaven sort of gets who we are, going to grade us on the curve, and it's all going to work out in the end. But that law is so demanding that it drives us to confess, I have one hope, and that hope is the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we confess him and proclaim his gospel until the day we see him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.